If you have a paper copy or a digital copy of the Bible, if you'll open it to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 27, 28, 29, and 30. Actually, we'll be focusing on 27 and 30 as we continue uh, our study in the life of David. We're looking at a period of time about a thousand years before Jesus. We're still not to the place where David is king of Israel. He's on the run from King Saul. He's been on the run for about uh, seven to ten years now. And life is just wearing him out, and, and he's being battered by life circumstances. And I believe there are some folks here who've come in this morning or are joining us online this morning who feel battered by life. Maybe you feel like a punching bag. This is, you know, a punching bag. Maybe this is what you picture. You picture a punching bag and something even more formal than this in a gym. And, but I, I dare to say that there are probably people here who, because we live in a broken, fallen, groaning world, there are circumstances you go through with health and other things that you just feel like you've been punched and punched and punched, and we live among broken people, people who will disappoint us, people who will hurt us, people who will let us down, and you feel like just one punch after another, and just when you seem like you're coming back up, another punch comes, or perhaps even your own failures and own shortcomings and sins and mistakes add to that, and you just feel battered in life. Now, maybe some of you picture something more formal like this, and when I was preparing for this, this was kind of the punching bag I pictured myself more like than that one that's a little more like that. It's something more like this. <laughs> and Sometimes we, we think we're doing battle in life, and maybe we feel like this little guy, you know, and we just get hit and punched and if you've come in here this morning just feeling just worn out, just when you thought things were getting better in your life or you'd gone through some weeks or months that seemed, things seemed to be okay and you felt like you were being punched again, I trust today in the message that you'll find encouragement and strength in the Lord. It's possible to make these things worse on ourselves. I wanna be clear that the scriptures don't say that when we are followers of Christ and we're leaning into God and we're living by faith that then all of our problems go away. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say when you suffer, and you will. That's a part of living in a broken world with other broken people being broken people. It's just gonna happen. But the way we deal with those circumstances, we can do it alone drawing away from the Lord, or we can lean into God and find strength as we lean into God and walk through these things with him. And today, in the life of David, we're gonna see how he draws away from God and it makes things worse, and then how he actually leans back into God and it makes his ability to cope with life circumstances even better. Today, as we look at 1 Samuel 27 through 30, we talk about when you feel like a punching bag. I wanna focus on this. When you feel like a punching bag, leaning away from God leaves you weary and reckless in how you're living. But leaning into God gives you strength and resilience for whatever you're going through. Again, God doesn't promise us problem-free lives. Doesn't say once you become a Christian, you live by faith, and if you have a strong enough faith, you won't have any troubles. Matter of fact, it may even create more troubles for you on this earth if you seek to live in love like Jesus in our world today. 
A lot of people think Christianity is about being problem-proof. No, God actually leaves us here dealing with the same problems our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends are dealing with so that we can be a light as we live and love like Jesus more, the light of Christ to people who are going through this world's suffering as we are, they can see something distinct and different in us and be drawn to Jesus. But we have to lean into God not draw away from him. And let me say this, the more you feel like you're a punching bag, the more you're gonna wanna just, just step back from God and worship and spending time in God's word and prayer and hanging out with God's people. That might be your natural inclination, that's what Satan loves, but the reality is you lean into God even more the more you feel like a punching bag. Let's talk about a leaning away from God as we see David do this. Again, David's been on the run for seven to 10 years. He's felt like a punching bag. He's had to hide in rocks and crevices. He's been joined by 600 people who had their own problems, men who had their own problems, then they had families with them. It's a big group of people. They've been on the run from King Saul. Saul had turned his back on God and through Samuel the prophet, he told Saul, this kingdom of Israel will not go to your sons and your ancestors, it will go to your descendants, but it will go to one whose heart is after me. And then God appointed and anointed David through Samuel the priest and the prophet to be the king. This, that happened almost 15 years earlier than this occasion, at least 15 years earlier than the occasion we're going to see here in 1 Samuel 27. But I want to share with you the three steps David does as he draws away from God. Old-fashioned preachers might call it as he gets into a season of backsliding, it was a dark time in his life. And I'm thankful the Lord allows us to see this and to see what he does to return to a strong leaning into God so that we can learn lessons for our lives today. The first thing you do if you're gonna lean away from God, number one, make a foolish assumption. A foolish assumption. David has been beat up. He's tired of being on the run. And we read this in verse one of 1 Samuel 27. But David thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. He comes to this foolish assumption that Saul's gonna kill him. He's basically saying, God doesn't know what he's doing. Saul's gonna actually kill me. I, I'm not gonna replace Saul. And so I gotta take matters into my own hands, and he goes to the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines are the people who tried to destroy the nation of Israel 12 to 15 years earlier by using the giant Goliath, and David had helped defeat Goliath, became the son-in-law to King Saul. He becomes the leader of the, the special forces of Israel until Saul gets jealous and angry and starts chasing David to destroy him. And now David is saying, I'm going to go to the Philistines and find help and solace. I'm gonna to have to take matters into my own hands. You see, we make a foolish assumption, and at the root of a foolish assumption about our lives is this. You get to this place where you believe you know better than God. So God's word says this about your attitude, the way you live, your behaviors, your relationships, about life. And you say, well, I, I've been punched around, I've been beat up so much that I, I just am rejecting what God says and I believe I know better than God. I'm gonna have to take matters into my own hands. He says, I'm gonna have to do this in verse one. 
That's a very dangerous place to be. When we say, I know what the Bible says, but the saddest words for me as a shepherd seeking to shepherd God's people, and it's possible somebody will say it to me after the service in the lobby, and that is, Pastor, I know what the Bible says about this, but that's where the false assumption begins, and that's where things get worse for us, not better. You believe you know better than God. Maybe you're here today and you've made a false assumption about your marriage, your family, your, your children, your grown children. You made a false assumption about your finances or about your health or the health of someone else, but you're taking matters into your own hands and saying, I know better than God, so I'm gonna do this. That's what David does. As he's leaning away from God, not into God. Secondly, live a double life. Live a double life. First of all, he says, I know better than God. I'm gonna have to take matters into my own hands and live my life my way. I can't trust God with this. And then he begins to live a double life. Look at verse two. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. Now Gath is Goliath's hometown. It's the capital of the Philistines at this point in history. Achish is king. And David goes to Achish for help. They all go there. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him. And David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. Now, just because David has a couple of wives doesn't mean the Bible endorses polygamy. just want to say that clearly here. This is a part of David's disobedience to God. It creates complications in his life that last even into the children and their lives. Notice the mention of Abigail. Pastor Brian Howard did a great job the last couple of weekends, particularly last week as he dealt with Nabal and Abigail and Abigail the peacemaker. And so it says David and his whole family and these men and all their families. So David has taken all these people down this path with him that we know better than God. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So it appears to be working. And when you first believe you know better than God, it'll look like it's working at first. Then David said to Achish, king of the Philistines, the arch enemies, the pagan people want to lift their God above the one true God of Israel, Jehovah. If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? Find me some outlying town. Honor those people. We, most commentators believe what happened was this little town of people, uh, they were told, you come and live and the king will take care of you and then he would give David a town. That's what he's asking for. So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. Ziklag, that's a really nice name for a town, isn't it? How'd you like to be telling people, I'm a Ziklagite? Sounds like you're coughing up a furball or something, Ziklag is the town. Now this little town is, is kind of in the same region he's been on the run from Saul, the no man's land between Israel and the east and the Philistines up against the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And Ziklag is kind of in the middle of that and yet it's controlled by the Philistines at that time. And so he says, you take Ziklag and I'll take care of those people. 
Now, I have been sharing with you through the summer, and we'll continue to do that as we continue the study of the life of David, some things beyond the sermon at a website I created called uh, aimyourheart.com. This week on aimyourheart.com, I'm gonna put up an article about the archeology span about Ziklag. There'd been a number of cities and, and archeological sites that we thought were Ziklag, but now archeologists are zooming in and we believe we have found Ziklag. It's really interesting. It goes back to this time period, and, and, and David has this as his base of operations. Verse 7, David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months, about 16 months in all. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. These are all three friends of the Philistines and enemies of Israel. That's odd. If he's living with the Philistines, he's He's attacking their friends. The Amalekites are people that were a problem to Israel and had been a problem. Matter of fact, God had told Saul, you better take them off the face of the planet. I'm commanding you to do that. They're gonna try to destroy my people, Israel. And Saul disobeyed, and that's part of why he, there was evidence he was turning his heart against God and why God removed the kingdom from him eventually and gave it to David. So David's men are running these raids and they're raiding the friends of the Philistines, the enemies of the Israelites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes, and then he returned to Achish. So the way Ziklag was situated, he could pretty much go anywhere and no one would know where he went and he could invade some of these people groups, and then he would come through Gath to provide some of the spoil back to Achish and kind of pay him for allowing him to live in that land. And so he comes back through. Verse 10, when Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. I went against Judah, my own people, my own home area. I'm attacking them against the Negev of Jeremiel. This, these, are, these, are the, uh, these are friends of Israel and enemies of the Philistines. And, and then he says, and against the Negev of the Kenites. These are, again, friends and, and a part of the alliance with Israel against the Philistines. And so he's saying, I am attacking your enemies. But he's lying because he's actually attacking the friends of the Philistines. He's living a double life. When you do that, you say one thing and you do another. In the book of wisdom in the New Testament, the book of James says that a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. Eventually, trying to live a double life, say, oh, I'm a follower of Christ. This is how I live. I love Jesus. I worship Jesus. I'm a, I, I am a Christian. And you talk real big when you're with other Christians or when you're at church, and then you live a whole other life feeding your own greed, lust, and pride. And, and there's this other side to you that's a very dangerous place to be. God calls us to be people who are people of integrity and authenticity. We don't live double lives. And David in this darkness, when he says, I know better than God, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. Now he's saying one thing and he's doing another thing. And this becomes a very dark period in his life. We believe uh, this period here lasts the better part of the time he's with the Philistines. It's a dark period, a dangerous time. For me, one of the better compliments anyone can give me who knows me personally or works with me personally is that I'm the same person behind the scenes as I am on the platform. 
People who have served as pastors in the American church in the last half a century, unfortunately, a lot of us have, have been up here and behind pulpits and talked about living for God and being generous, not greedy people, being people who aren't filled with lust, being people who aren't proud and arrogant, and then there's all this talk publicly. They say one thing publicly, and then there's something else going on behind the scenes, and it's destroyed and ruined many churches and distracted a lot of people from Jesus. And so I have a real passion of living a life of authenticity and being the, the same person that I say that I am. I, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm pursuing and seeking becoming like Jesus as God would shape me and mold me and make me more like him. Thank God he taught me this lesson pretty young, that you shouldn't live a, a duplicitous life, say one thing and do another. I was raised in the church, and when I got into my uh, early teen years, the same age as those kids who were here for summer nights, the middle school, when I was in seventh grade, um, actually in seventh and eighth grade, I got into some things at a young age, was, had opportunities to say and do and, and uh, uh, see and participate in things at a very young age that I shouldn't have, and I really got caught up with that with my friends, but at church, I served and worked with other kids younger than me and looked like this good Christian and the Christian school I went to at the time, I looked like a good Christian, but my friends and I were doing a lot of things we shouldn't be doing. And I remember in uh, the end of my seventh grade year in this Christian school in Osceola, Indiana, and uh, we got to the awards chapel and it was a pretty big Christian school and the seventh grade was put the way back in the top bleachers and they were giving out these awards and I was sitting with my friends and they got to the final which they considered the biggest award and there was, they would appoint, they would uh, say the faculty had voted on the student that was male and the student that was female that demonstrated the most Christian Christ-like character. They named the female and it made sense, oh yeah, she loves Jesus, we all know that, yep. And then they went to say the male's name and they said my name and I was stunned. The faculty voted on me being the most Christ-like and I was sitting with my friends and they started whispering things that we'd been doing and they were like, really? And I, I walked down those bleachers, I'll never forget that walk, and I got down there and the principal of the school had this broken plaque that was the, the award I was to get and he said, I'm sorry, it's broken and uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to order a new one and we'll get it to you. I was so embarrassed because I knew I had a double life. I was saying one thing, pretending to be something, and then living a different way. I remember then leaving that, that uh, uh, Christian school and went into the public schools, and it was about a year, year and a half later, the principal had changed at the Christian school. A new secretary had come, and, and this new secretary called my house and said, we've got this plaque that's been here under the cabinet for a long time. Does Sean want it? It's the replacement for the broken one, I guess. And if he would just come and get it. And so my grandfather took me and, and I got the plaque and as I was walking back to the car, the Lord just sort of, because what had happened was in the time when I had been awarded that plaque and they didn't give it to me because it was broken and living that double life, I'd actually had to come to Jesus' time where I gave my life to Christ and committed to walk the way he wanted me to walk and to live for him and even serve him and as a pastor, a missionary, whatever he wanted. I knew I didn't deserve that plaque back then, but as I was walking away now, it was like the Lord saying, now this plaque is yours. Because now you're on the right path. You're seeking to be not just someone to other people and someone to a whole different group of people, but you're seeking to follow me. Again, I'm not perfect, it wasn't perfect then, but, but the desire in my heart to be like Jesus and, and, and not live a duplicitous life set in very early 
Of course, we all grapple with those struggles and it's, it's a difficult thing to maintain that focus, but it's so important because what David did here is he said, God doesn't know what I know and I'm gonna have to take over and I'm gonna have to live a way that I look this way and do this and he's, he's living this duplicitous life. If you're living a double life right now, it will come crashing down and it will distract people from the Jesus you say that you serve. The third step in leaning away from God is to embrace a calloused heart. Embrace a calloused heart. You see, once you say, I know better than God, and you just set aside the scriptures and what God has to say, and then you say, I'm gonna have to talk like this and live like this, and you live in duplicity, then what happens is you gotta cover all that up and you begin to hurt people. At first it can be people that you barely know and people who are at a distance and then you begin to hurt the people you care about the most and, and they get harmed and the people you love the most get harmed by your backing away from God and living life on your own. Look at verses 11 and 12. So he does all this raiding in verse 10 when he returned to Achish that we read in verse nine, in verse 10, Achish says, where'd you go? He said, I've been attacking your enemies. We read in verse 11, he did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. As a matter of fact, if you read the first two Verses of chapter 28, it says that Achish so trusted David, he made him his personal bodyguard and he made his men like the secret service that would protect him as king. But David has to kill innocent people. He gets to this dark place in his life where he's hurting people because it will help him. And we get to that place where we're rejecting what God says for what we think. We begin to live a life that we pro profess this but live a different way. Then you're gonna get to this place where you're gonna start to hurt innocent people and people you don't know really well and eventually you're gonna start hurting your spouse and your kids, your coworkers, the people, the friends, the people in the church, the people you're close to. It, it will hurt other people. The third stage is you embrace this calloused heart you hurt others if it will help you. This is such a dark period in David's life. Some people, when they just skim over the life of David, they get to the point where he has this passionate desire to build a permanent temple for God, for Jehovah God in Jerusalem, and God says, no, you've shed too much innocent blood. Some people just go to the story of Uriah and the people that David had killed around that time, Uriah having Uriah killed and the sin with Bathsheba, all that. God's saying, no, there have been some innocent people you've been killing. You've, there's a, there's a dark place in your past. I'm not gonna let you build the temple. It's gonna be your son who's gonna build the temple. There were consequences to the darkness and the recklessness of David's life. How did he get to this point? He said, I know better than God. He set aside what God said for what he thought. It's the first step down this treacherous and dark path. We're all going through being punched in life, but the, the way to make it worse, the way to be weary and weak and reckless and desperate is to lean away from God when you feel like a punching bag. The famous television personality who asked the question, how's that working for you? If you've been believing you know better than God and you've been setting aside what God's word says to live life your way, 
thinking somehow it's going to remove the punches, make things easier. If you've been saying one thing and doing another, how's that working for you? If you've been hurting people, maybe even the people you love, just to help yourself, to try to make life better for you at the expense of others, how's that working for you? This is a bad season in David's life, and I'm so thankful God doesn't hide from us the dark places. Pastor Brian mentioned this last week in his message in 1 Samuel 25 about David's anger, his self-righteous anger, and how it flared up, and it was a dark season in David's life. This is one of the darkest seasons in David's life, from 1 Samuel 27 till we get to 1 Samuel 30. How's that working for you if you're leaning away from God? It's not gonna work out in the end. It's gonna be miserable. You're gonna be weary. You're gonna be living recklessly to the point you hurt other people, people even close to you. Well, Achish is sure that now he has the great giant slayer on his side. You see, 15 years earlier, the Philistines wanted to annihilate Israel so they could move past their territory and get to better economic partners and maybe even take over other kingdoms. Israel was the only thing blocking them and in their path. And so they'd sent Goliath out. It had been David who God had used to defeat Goliath. But now David is on his side for the second time in a decade and a half. The Philistines decide it's time to annihilate the Israelites and they march 20 miles in to Israelite territory, to the area of Jezreel, the Jezreel Valley. We'll be there in February of 2024. Those of you who are gonna be traveling with us or if you wanna travel with us, are gonna be uh, having a tour of the Holy Land. It's gonna be a great trip. We'll be in the Jezreel Valley in that area. Right attached to that valley is another valley, Megiddo, where the prophecies of Scripture talk about the Battle of Armageddon taking place. This is a, an amazing battlefield in that area. It's kind of the battlefield of all battlefields, the best place to fight, and the Philistines pick that spot. They're gonna have the fight of all fights. They're gonna destroy the Israelites. They've got David on their side now, Achish thinks. And so he gets ready to go to battle and moves his people. They're ready. Uh, Israel is nervous. Uh, Saul is upset because... Uh, he just has no connection with God anymore. He's turned his back on God. Samuel, the prophet and priest, is gone. And, and so Saul is in a panic. And he disguises himself and goes to a witch in a town called Endor. Now, he had removed all the witches and, and anyone dealing in the occult from Israel, one of the best things Saul ever did when he became king of Israel. And so he knows that witches and others like that are not going to have anything to do with him, so he disguises himself to go to the Witch of Endor. Interesting name, Endor. Do you remember the show Bewitched? Do you remember Samantha's mother's name? Endora. They got that name out of the biblical context of the witch. Now, it just it's an interesting connection. But this witch, Saul hopes, will be able to do a seance and call back Samuel, the priest and prophet from the dead, and he has a very important question he wants to ask him. He wants to know how the battle's gonna go, and maybe Samuel can speak for God even from the dead. So he goes to the witch, and she does whatever she does, and she must have been a phony because if you read 1 Samuel 28, she's shocked when Samuel actually shows up. She's stunned. God allows Samuel to appear to Saul, and he asks a simple question, What's gonna happen in the battle? And Samuel's answer is, you're gonna die, you and your sons, tomorrow in battle, and you're gonna join me in the grave. That wasn't what Saul was hoping to hear, but it's what the message was. 
And so Saul is getting ready for that battle. And on his side, Achish has David. And in chapter 29, David and his men go to be with King Achish and the Philistines getting ready for the battle against their own people, the Israelites, and King Saul. And they're in preparation. Now, these guys are gonna be the, the secret service around the king. And in that day, in that kind of slice and dice, hand-to-hand, in the trenches, in the valley kind of warfare that would be taking place, this wasn't capture the flag and you win. This was capture the king's head and you win. Achish so trusts David that he wants David to protect his head in battle. And the generals of the Philistines come along and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you doing, Achish? Are you a fool? How stupid can you be? You know what he's doing? He's setting you up. He's earned your trust. As soon as you go to battle, he's going to turn around and cut off your head, and he and Saul will make up, and there'll be a great victory for Israel. You can't go to battle with David and these men. And he tries to push back, but the generals say, we're not going to battle if he's going to be guarding you. So Achish comes to David and said, I'm sorry, you guys, you, you guys have to return back to your, your home there in Ziklag, and you're going to have to sit this one out. Now, can you imagine when David and his men leave Ziklag to go prepare for battle with the Philistines, as we read in 1 Samuel 29? Can you imagine the emotions? They're leaving their family. They might be killed in battle. Not only that, they're going to be fighting their brothers and their cousins, their own nation, with the, the pagan enemy, the Philistines. Can you imagine the emotions that were swirling as they left Ziklag? We learn in the first part of 1 Samuel 30, it was a three-day journey. Can you imagine the three days of heaviness? Now David has included these men and their families in, in this duplicity and in this rejecting what God has to say about his life and his own waywardness and backing away from God. He's now involved them. He's now involved his own family in this. So then we read in 1 Samuel 30 about how God works in David's life and how David leans into God. So we've talked about leaning away from God. You make a foolish assumption. You live a double life. You embrace the callous heart. Well, what do you do when you're being punched around like David had been for all this time? What do you do to lean into God, to lean back into God? Well, 1 Samuel 30 gives us the answer. And I want to read this passage here in 1 Samuel 30, picking up with David and his men being rejected by the generals of the Philistine army. They're returning to their town of Ziklag, and we read, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Can you imagine the joy, the optimism, the hope, maybe wondering if the baby had been born, how everybody was doing, they're excited, they come up over the hill. Now the Amalekites, these are the people Saul refused to destroy, the people David had been invading and telling Achish the opposite, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it. By the way, the article I'm going to share about the archaeology of this, one of the reasons they believe this is the spot is there is a burn line in the archaeological ruins of this era exactly that matches this time frame and what the scriptures say. And he had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Now, put yourselves in their sandals for a moment. All they know is the town is burned down, there are no bodies or corpses, and people have been taken away. They don't know who's done this, they don't know where they've gone, they don't know if their families have been enslaved, if they've been slaughtered in the desert, they've been abused, they know nothing, but they come back anticipating seeing their families and being in their town of Ziklag and it's burned down and no one's there. And then we read in 
Verse four, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Here's one more punch, another punch. Ziklag is gone. The people are missing. It says David and his men. Now these are tough guys. They've been on the run from Saul. They've been living in rocks and crevices. These are, these are tough guys. It says they cry until they have no more power to cry. I wanted to know what the Hebrew said, so I went back to my seminary training in Old Testament Hebrew. Uh, a long time ago, I researched this, did a lot of work, spent hours. What is this phrase? They had no more, they, they cried until they had no more power to cry. And, and what I found, what it meant in the Hebrew was, they cried until they had no more power to cry. And the narrator is very clear to include David and his wives and his family here because he's saying, look, it affected these men, it affected David. Notice what's happened now. Originally, his drawing away from God and living life on his own hurt some innocent people he didn't know, but now it's beginning to affect the men he cared about, the men who had entrusted themselves to him, their families, his own family. Now his backing away from God, his leaving God out of his life on that false assumption that he knew better than God is now affecting the people he cares about to the place where they have no more power to weep. They can't cry anymore. And then we read in verse five, David's two wives have been captured, Hinnom of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. We read in verse six, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. So he's crying with them. I just picture him, you know, they've got their arms around each other. They're consoling one another. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. They know there's been destruction. Their, their people are missing the people they love. And all of a sudden, when they have no more power to weep, he looks around and all the guys are starting to pick up some pretty big rocks. Let's kill him. It's David's fault. He's the one who brought us into the land of the Philistines. He's the one who made us Ziklagites. He's the one who got us into this mess. Let's kill David. This is a low point for David. By the way, this probably over a year period of David's life is one of the longest periods in his life where we have no hint of his leaning into God, no hint of him writing a psalm this is one of the longest dark times in his life where he said, I know better than God. I'm gonna live however I wanna live. I don't care who I hurt. Now this is where he's come. How's that working for you, David? How's that working for you if you've said, I know better than God. I'll live my life the way I wanna live it. I don't care who I hurt. He's at a very low point. Just as much and as awful and horrible as 1 Samuel 27, 1 is where he says, surely I'm gonna die at the hand of King Saul. He rejects what God says about him, that he's gonna be king. Just as much as that is a horrible statement, the last part of verse six is a wonderful statement. It's a verse I go back to a lot in my own life. David's at this very low point. He's hurting, he's in pain. They're blaming him. They're talking about stoning him, and we read, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Some translations will say David encouraged himself and the Lord has got. This is him now choosing to lean back in again, to lean back into his God. Maybe you came in here today feeling like that punching bag that just life has just been punching at you and punching at you and punching at you. Can I say this? That you can begin a journey today if you've stepped away from God, stepped back from your relationship with him, 
you can begin a journey today of finding strength and resilience and even satisfaction and meaning in your God, even if the punches keep coming? So what does he do? Verse 7, then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? So what he does now is he had rejected what God had to say about how he was going to be king and began to believe what he wanted to believe. He knew better than God. Now he's saying, I've got to turn back to God. I've got to hear from God as to what I do next as the leader of these people. Now the ephod was a part of the breastplate of the priest that had been given through the law of Moses. And there were two stones in the ephod, the Urim and the Thummim, and we really don't know exactly how they operated, but through these stones, before the scriptures were completed, there was clear direction from God in the written word. This would be a way in which God would communicate to the leaders of Israel. And so David calls for that, and he inquires of the Lord, what shall I do? And we read then at the last part, of verse eight, pursue them, he answered, you will certainly overtake them, the Lord says, and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to Bezor Valley where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley for all they'd gone through, but David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. Whereas before he rejected God's way, now he wants to hear from God and he's gonna do what God wants him to do. And the blows are going to keep coming. We're going to see that next week and the next week. The blows are going to keep coming, but he's not going to add to his misery. He's going to find strength and resilience in his God. He finds strength in the Lord. I want to give you a few observations from this part of the text as to how David did that in 1 Samuel. By the way, it's the Amalekites as we read from the narration, but they discovered some Amalekites. They tracked them down. They take the spoil. He gives spoil to all 600 men, even those who were too tired to go on. He then sends some of the spoil from the Amalekites that they'd taken from other people into the areas of Judah that he'd told uh, Achish he'd been invading. So his loyalty, he wants them to know he is still on their side. But how do you lean into God? Maybe you say, okay, I've... I've walked away from what God says. I've, I've taken matters into my own hands. Yes, I'm saying one thing and doing another. And yes, I've hurt some people that I didn't mean to hurt in my leaning away from God. How do you lean into God? Number one, be humble in your spirit. Be humble in your spirit. Humble yourself before God, or else God may have to humble you like he humbled David. But be humble in your spirit. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, through 7, the New Living Translation says something about humility. Matter of fact, these two verses are a summary by Peter of one of the Psalms of David himself about humility. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. Keep giving them to God, keep giving them to God. Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't believe you know better than God. Be humble. You know, the first stage in humbling ourselves before God is to come to that place where we know we need a relationship with God, that we are indeed sinful people before a holy God. We can't do anything to rescue ourselves, and we lean into and we humble ourselves before God and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I humbly come before you. I put my faith in Jesus who died and was buried and was raised for me. And then we have a relationship with God. That relationship with God starts by humbling ourselves and receiving Jesus as Savior. 
If you're here today and you haven't done that, I'd love to talk to you about that afterwards in the lobby. You can, care to, you can talk to our care and prayer team. We'll come down after each service to pray with folks. You can also, if you're in the room or you're online, you can just take the name Jesus and put it in the body of a text and text that one word message. Text it to 58568, the number on the screen below me. People will follow up. Maybe you just have a question about what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus. Or maybe you say, I know what it means, and today's the day I put my faith in Jesus. We'll celebrate that with you. Reach out to us. We'll answer your questions. We'll celebrate your coming to Jesus as Savior. Help you in that decision before the Lord. Be humble in your spirit. It begins with that saving faith. Then as you are God's child, then he walks with us in that humility. This is where we let God be God. I think this is one of the greatest struggles of my spiritual journey is letting God be God. I, I don't know, I must say it five to 10 times a week in my own wrestling with God, in my own personal life, and my life as a pastor, uh, dealing with the church and with my family and life. I, I, I probably say it five to 10 weeks, five to 10 times in a week, God, you are God and I am not. God, you are God and I am not. God, you are God and I am not. God, I'm gonna believe what you say. I'm gonna embrace that. I'm gonna humble myself before you. You gotta know that God is God and you're not. He is sovereign. David is on the run. He's going through these punches over and over again. But when he becomes king, he's been prepared in God's sovereignty to be that king through all those punches he's taken. God knew what he was doing. God is sovereign. He's in control. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of the late 19th century, said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. Put your head on the pillow at night and say, I, I don't know, I don't know. But I'm gonna let God be God. He is sovereign. Be humble in your spirit. Secondly, be responsible for your choices. Be responsible for your choices. David encourages himself in the Lord, and then he immediately takes charge. He doesn't say, oh, you guys are just as much to blame. You could have told me not to move in with the Philistines. You could have told me not to go off to go to battle. You could have told me Ziklag was not a great town. You, he doesn't do any of that. He takes responsibility for his choices and his actions. If you've stepped away and, and drawn back from the Lord in any way, humble yourself. Be humble in your spirit. And then be responsible for your choices. Stop acting like a victim. Now, let me just say this. There are legitimate victims when someone does something wrong to someone else. And you need to get the right kind of help and therapy, especially if you've suffered abuse or the wrong of others for a long period of time, and our care ministry is there to help you with that. But in our current culture, we've come to the place that we're all victims all the time looking for somebody else to blame for everything. We don't take responsibility for our own choices that made it, might have taken us down a path like David went down that makes things worse and makes us more miserable. I remember reading a study about Holocaust survivors who'd been in concentration camps during the Holocaust and how after decades, those who referred to themselves as victims lived shorter lives. They had a lot more health, mental and physical health problems, but those who called themselves survivors of the Holocaust actually lived longer lives, had less physical and emotional and mental health problems, 
because they saw themselves as survivors rather than victims. David is playing the victim in 1 Samuel 27, but in 1 Samuel 30, as he encourages himself in the Lord as God, part of that is he takes responsibility for his choices, his actions, his decisions, and how they've affected others. And maybe you're here in the room and you've been blaming others. It's time to take responsibility for your actions and your choices. Confess that before the Lord. Seek to restore and repair what's been broken. Stop acting like the victim. The third thing David does here is not only approaches God with a humble spirit, not only takes responsibility for his choices, but be obedient to your God. Be obedient to your God. Follow what he says completely. So when he hears from God, God says, pursue. Some of them get tired. He could have said, you know what? I'm not going to pursue anymore. I know better than God. No, he says, you guys, I get it. You 200, you stay here. You other 400 still got strength. Let's go. We're going to obey God completely. We're going to follow him. I'm going to listen to him. I'm not going to believe that what I think is better than what God says. I'm going to trust what God says to be true, and I'm going to obey him. I remember as a kid singing the hymn, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on the way. You know that? And then I love how the chorus says, for all who will trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. For some of us, it's, uh, to lean into God today is to believe what God says in his word, Live by it, live in obedience to it. Now, a lot of people say, well, the Bible says don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. God is just this cosmic killjoy who wants our lives to be miserable. No, he is the God who designed you and wired you, and he knows where fulfillment and satisfaction comes from. He knows for David where there'll be fulfillment, joy, and peace, even as life batters him and he feels the punches. He knows how it can be a much more meaningful and full and peace-filled life, even in the midst of the punches. Matter of fact, Jesus summarized what the Old Testament said himself when he talked about all the commands of Scripture, all the things that tell us how to live and behave and what kind of relationships we have and responses we have. All of the commands are, are fixed on two major commands. Matthew 22, 37 to 38. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of God's commands help us love God more and help us then love each other in God's family, God's family more, and ultimately to love our neighbors more. It's God and others. We need to walk in obedience to what God says. We need to humble ourselves, take responsibility for our choices and our actions, and then we need to walk in obedience to God and trust God with the outcome. In the course of David's life, when he listens to God, obeys God, and trusts God for the outcome, he is at great peace even in the midst of the punches. But when he says, I know better than God, I'm gonna take control of my own life, I don't care who it hurts, in the midst of punches, things get worse. But when you humble yourself, you take responsibility for your actions, you obey God completely, and you trust him, God gives you the strength and resilience you need in life, even as the punches come. Are you leaning in, are you leaning away from God, or leaning into him? Are you leaning away from God, or are you leaning into him? You know you're heading down the wrong path when you say, I know better than God. It all started with a false assumption. What a difference 
1 Samuel 27, verse 1 is, and 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6 is. Maybe there's some in the room today that need that. Today's the day you need to lean into God again afresh. Humble yourself. Take responsibility for your actions. And then walk in obedience with your God and trust him with the outcome. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you don't hide from us the dark places in the lives of the great heroes of the faith that we can learn from them. Thank you that in the midst of this, David is still a man pursuing your heart ultimately. May the trajectory of our lives be to pursue you. Father, I pray for those who maybe said, I have said recently or months ago or years ago, I know better than God. May they humble themselves today before you. Pray for those who've been saying one thing and doing another. May today they take responsibility for their actions and choose to walk with integrity, pursuing Christ-likeness. And Father, for maybe those who've been in their disobedience hurting and including others in the pain of their folly, may today be the day they say, you know what, I'm going to obey God and I'm going to trust God. I'm going to obey God and trust God. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Thank you again for the important lesson of when we feel like leaning back, that's when we lean into you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.